Welcome to the Impact Education Payer Talk CE program, Eosinophilic Esophagitis Management, Evolving Recommendations for Managed Care, with a focus today on collaborative care and the patient journey. My name is Steve Colusi, and I'm your host for this episode, and I'm the manager of the Clinical Pharmacy Strategies team at Highmark. This Payer Talk CE program is jointly provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education and Impact Education LLC and is designated for 0.5 contact hours of continuing education credit. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Inc. and Sanofi, and we'd like to thank them for their support. Before we get started, I would like to take a moment to acquaint you with a few features of the webcast platform. To submit questions for our faculty to address during the Q&A portion, please use the Q&A tool. For logistical or technical questions regarding claiming credit or other issues, please use the chat. At the conclusion of today's webcast, you'll be able to complete an evaluation which must be submitted to receive credit. To get to the evaluation, click Complete Evaluation in the navigation within the activity. Once you complete your evaluation, you must click Claim Credit to download. Today, we'll be discussing the patient journey with eosinophilic esophagitis and evolving recommendations for collaborative care. I'm joined today by Mary Jo Strobel, the Executive Director of the American Partnership for Eosinophilic Disorders, and Dr. Evan Dellen of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to discuss the patient journey with eosinophilic esophagitis and evolving recommendations for collaborative care. Welcome to both of you. Hi, thank you for having us. Terrific to be here. Absolutely. And so starting with Mary Jo, can you just tell us a little bit more about your work and research in EOE? Yes, thank you. My professional interest in patient advocacy spans 25 years. And prior to my focus in eosinophilic disorders, my attention was IgE-mediated food allergy and anaphylaxis. I came on board with APBED. Uh, which is a a 501c3 nonprofit organization founded in 2001 with the mission to passionately embrace, support, and improve the lives of patients and families affected by eosinophil-associated diseases through education and awareness, research, support, and advocacy. In in my role at AppFed, I have the opportunity to directly contribute to all areas of our mission Thank you so much for that introduction, Mary Jo. And how about you, Dr. Dallin? Yes, hi, I'm I'm Evan Dallin. I'm an adult gastroenterologist at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and also uh, serve as the director of the Center for Esophageal Diseases and Swallowing there. My main interests, both clinically and in research, are really eosinophilic esophagitis and the eosinophilic GI uh, disorders. And research generally will span across most aspects of those conditions from diagnosis to pathogenesis, epidemiology, outcomes and treatments. And I've been involved in a lot of clinical trials as well. And so very uh, interested and uh, excited to talk about the topics today. That's great. Thank you so much for those introductions. I am very much looking forward to learning from both of you here today. So uh, jumping right in, I see that the goal of much of your work is to improve the lives of patients with EOE by learning how to better diagnose and treat and monitor that condition. Can you tell us about what you have learned about the diagnostic journey for those patients with EOE? And we'll start with Mary Jo. 
So EOE significantly impacts patients and their families, uh, be it physically, socially, mentally, and financially. And these impacts are felt through their entire journey with the disease. The journey begins with the path to diagnosis, which is the first set of many challenges that patients will likely face. Recently, APFED had embarked on a collaboration with the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America to conduct a multi-component cross-sectional needs assessment for EOE, which was released in May titled Life with EOE, the Patient Experience and Opportunities to Improve Care in the U.S., what makes diagnosis challenging in part are that the symptoms of EOE may mimic or be applicable to other conditions, and the symptoms can vary from one person to the next. They may also differ depending on the age and the communication skills of the age group affected. Infants and toddlers often present with food refusal, failure to thrive, or vomiting. School-aged children may complain of recurring stomach pain, trouble swallowing, or vomiting. And adolescents and adults most often experience dysphagia, food impactions, and reflux. And people with EOE report significant delays between the onset of symptoms and the diagnosis. In our Life with EOE study, a little more than half of the patients and caregivers reported that it took a year or more for them to receive an EOE diagnosis after the symptoms began, and 14% reported that it took more than 10 years. So one of the factors contributing to this delay is that people experiencing symptoms of EOE often don't recognize it to be as a result of an underlying condition that requires medical attention. Many adopt coping mechanisms before seeing a doctor. For example, uh, if they are experiencing difficulty swallowing, they'll avoid certain textures of food or they will eat smaller bites or coat their food with uh, sauces to make it easier to swallow or they will drink a lot of liquid to help push the food down. And when they finally seek help, diagnosis can be further delayed. Patients frequently cite low general awareness about EOE among the doctors that they initially see for symptoms, which means that the doctors aren't familiar with the presentation of EOE, the patient might not receive the referral to a specialist to pursue the diagnostic. Patients also cite delays as it pertains to wait times to see a doctor or having to see several doctors before finding one who recognizes the signs and the symptoms of EOE and can guide them to an accurate diagnosis. Some report being misdiagnosed, uh, such as with acid reflux, for example. Uh, and timely diagnosis is important because uncontrolled or poorly controlled EOE can have significant impacts on health, quality of life factors such as missed time from work, school, and socializing, and emotional well being. Thank you so much for that information, Mary Jo. Really, some of those statistics that you shared are so devastating to hear, but hopefully, programs like this are going to help our audience appreciate the impact on the patient. Dr. Dillon, do you have anything to add regarding the diagnostic journey for the patient with EOE? I think it's a, it's a great summary. And 
uh, Mary Jo, you really highlighted key points. I would maybe make two additional comments. One is that a part of the delay is related to these modification behaviors. And so if you are a patient, we can't help you is on the provider side until you're actually in front of us. And so that's half of really the battle there. The other half, as Mary Jo mentioned, is having providers work through what are often nonspecific symptoms to think about, you know, a relatively uncommon condition like EOE and make that diagnosis. Because, you know, with every year of increase of ongoing symptoms and ongoing disease activity without treatment, there is an appreciable increase in the chances over years that people are going to end up with strictures and other uh, fibrotic complications in their esophagus. Now, the related point to this is it's interesting is that there's some centers in, in different parts of the world that have um, reported that despite increased knowledge and education about EOE, they're not seeing a decrease in diagnostic delay. But at a couple other centers, notably in papers recently published in, out of Spain and out of Denmark, where there are co- some coordinated care systems and specific educational activities at multiple levels of providers, they are seeing a decrease in the in the diagnostic delay, which is which is very encouraging. Dr. Dellen, you referred to this delay in diagnosis causing problems down the line. So what are some of the considerations you have as a gastroenterologist around starting treatment for patients? Yeah, so there's several aspects to the discussion. The first is really communicating what they can expect in that EOE is a chronic condition. And oftentimes I'll relate it to a more familiar condition like asthma. It's a chronic condition that does require treatment. And we know that in EOE, if patients stop their therapy, nearly all of them will have recurrent disease activity. And with for most, it's really within just a few months. And to emphasize the point of long-term management. Uh, the next thing is you know, once they understand that you know treatment is needed, it's really what are what are the goals of treatment? And of course, from the patient's standpoint, it's improving symptoms and how they feel, improving quality of life, decreasing the burden of disease for their day-to-day uh, activities, but also understanding that there's additional goals of treatment as well, which is to improve the biologic activity of the disease. So decreased inflammation, finding endoscopic or, or healing when you actually look at the esophagus, and then presenting complications, uh, including growth problems and malnutrition in in children and in some adults, um, and preventing those fibrotic complications like esophageal strictures and food impactions that can lead to um, urgent endoscopies and even complications from endoscopy with esophageal injury. So I think communicating that rationale is the key first part And then the next real set of considerations when you're thinking about starting treatment is to understand the types of treatments that are available and what's important to the patients as they select what treatment they want. And generally, we'll discuss that there are non-pharmacologic treatments and pharmacologic treatments. And that's often a major breakpoint for patients in terms of where their preferences lie. We don't have comparative efficacy data or comparative efficacy trials between different modalities of therapies right now. So it really comes down to discussing the response rates and the merits of each therapy and what's involved in each one. So for patients who have esophageal strictures already at the time of diagnosis that are causing symptoms of trouble swallowing, it's a discussion really about performing esophageal dilation or stretching the esophagus at some point, whether it's up front or after some initial treatment, to help relieve symptoms of trouble swallowing. 
Otherwise, the non-pharmacologic treatment is really diet elimination. So trying to remove and identify potential food triggers. And that's a very effective option um, for some people. Many parents opt for this for young children because their diet and food intake can be closely controlled. And many adults opt for this as well because they're really interested in finding out the underlying cause. But for some people, you know, adolescents, uh, people in college where they may eat in the dorm and may not have very fine control over food contamination, people who travel a lot for work, or people who just don't want to modify their diet, that's not going to be the right option for them. And so you have to understand that. And then you move into the pharmacotherapies. Um, and generally, these include proton pump inhibitors, swallow topical steroids, and biologics. And understanding which one to start with for a given person, what they have access to, which actually is dependent on the country of residence and which what medications are approved, um, and their actual preferences, and then the disease severity as well. And so I, I think all of those issues come into play. And then again, it's going to be a shared decision-making model of choosing that and understanding sort of what the intensity of the of the therapy is and, and how that may work for patients. I would add on to that also that uh, patient, in terms of patient preference with treatment um, and whether or not they choose dietary therapy or a pharmaceutical-based approach to treatment will depend on their ability to adhere to the therapy. Uh, dietary therapy can be very challenging for patients to really stick with. And whether it's a matter of trialing different foods to find a culprit or a problematic food to the ability to afford specialty ingredients or their access to cook specialty foods from scratch and down to elemental or amino acid-based formula that may be prescribed for full or partial nutrition and the ability to afford that or access to a dietitian to help them with dietary therapy would be another pain point. And so, Dr. Dellen, I'll go back to you. Um, I know that you recently did some work with an international expert group on recommendations for monitoring patients with eosinophilic esophagitis. Why do you think it's important to monitor patients with EOE as part of that routine clinical practice? Right. This is really interesting. And this, this work was done by an international um, group of collaborators, one from Europe called Urios and one from the U.S. called Tigers. And the goal was to try to standardize how we may monitor patients and try to answer what seems like a simple question, right? How do we know when someone's better? Uh, in EOE, but it's actually not that simple. And one of the key things about monitoring patients is that you want to make sure that your therapies are working. And really tricky thing in EOE is that when you ask someone how they're feeling, the symptoms that they may report do not correlate all the time and, and generally may not correlate very well with the underlying biologic disease activity. And this is actually not something that's super uncommon in medicine. Like you could ask somebody with high blood pressure, how are they feeling? And they feel fine, but their blood pressure may be completely uncontrolled. And in EOE, it's a little bit different because you know the upper GI symptoms, um, particularly when you get into um, symptoms of trouble swallowing, can be really minimized, as Mary Jo mentioned before, by people being careful with how they eat. And unless you go into specifically asking about some of the adaptive behaviors that they're doing, and sometimes asking either partners or family members about how they appear to be eating, you may 
hear from someone that they feel fine, but they may be taking an hour to eat meals. They may not be eating meats or breads um, or difficult to chew foods. They may be cutting their food into tiny pieces, pureeing it, drinking a lot of liquids to get foods down, not being able to swallow pills or you know chewing them or choosing liquid preparations. And by, by doing all that, they may have no symptoms. And then they also over years accommodate to this, uh, what would be an abnormal sensation related to swallowing that they just feel is normal for them. Now, the second part of this is because we know that if there's ongoing inflammation and disease activity, even if they feel better, it's likely that most people are going to continue to develop scarring and fibrosis of the esophagus and be at risk for complications. It doesn't happen to everybody, but again, it's, it's the majority. And so we want to make sure that we're, our treatments are doing what we hope they're doing. Coupled with that is that some of the treatments are not all the time effective. So a, a response at one point in time may not mean that patients continue to respond. So a measurable percentage of patients may lose response to their a successful therapy over time. And then as Mary Jo mentioned, adherence is critical. And just like in many different medical conditions, it can be difficult to uh, adhere to chronic therapies in EOE. And so that scheduled follow-up may allow improved adherence to therapy. So what these monitoring guidelines um, suggest is that when you start a treatment, you give that treatment a period of time, often two to three months, sometimes up to six months, depending on what the, the therapy is, to have it have an effect. And then you would assess the patient and follow up using multiple assessments, one in the symptom domain, one in the endoscopic domain to see if they're healing um, visually, and one on the biopsy domain to see if the microscopic or histologic aspects of the disease are also improving. If they are improving, then you would, and you continue the same therapy, you would set up a monitoring plan for the patient, which would be regular clinical follow-up and, depending on the characteristics of their disease, endoscopic follow-up at some point. And so again, this is going to be individualized with a shared decision-making approach. And now we're seeing newly approved therapies for EOE. We're seeing multiple new therapies in the pipeline being tested in clinical trials. And so a patient who responded five years ago and is on the same therapy, it may be something to readdress whether they're still on the right therapy for them. So all of these reasons um, you know, contribute to why we want to see patients, the majority of them on maintenance therapy and being monitored regularly. I'll also note that uh, endoscopy under anesthesia can be burdensome for patients. It's missed time from work, missed time from school, and there can be significant out-of-pocket expenses related to that. Patients are also concerned about multiple repeat procedures that require anesthesia, uh, particularly so if they or their child require anesthesia for other conditions outside of EOE. Thank you both. And we'll switch gears one last time for our final question here. And we'll go back to Dr. Dellen for this one. And that is how important is collaborative care in delivering the best outcomes for patients with EOE? I think it's very important um, for a lot of the patients EOE is interesting in that the field itself is very multidisciplinary. There are adult and pediatric providers across specialties like gastroenterology, allergy immunology, pathology, nutrition, and epidemiology. And I think one of the reasons that we've seen such rapid expansion of our knowledge in the field and advances is because of the multidisciplinary collaboration. And I think that can benefit patients in a number of ways. So if you 
look at the disease itself, there's a gastrointestinal component with the GI tract inflammation and the symptoms, and there's also an allergy component in the pathophysiology. And EOE patients have very frequently um, other allergic conditions as well. And so it really um, is beneficial to the patient to have a collaborative approach where you know, the GI aspects are evaluated and the allergy aspects are fully uh, taken under control. Another example is with the dietary elimination. Um, most GI doctors, especially on the adult side, don't have much nutrition training during their fellowship in GI. And so collaborating either with allergists or both with allergists and a dietitian is really important um, for doing that, that food elimination process. When you're doing diagnosis, having close collaborations with um, the pathologist to make sure that you as the clinician are getting the appropriate information you need from the biopsy is, is also important. And then you know the collaboration between pediatric and adult providers. This is a chronic condition across the lifespan. And so you know, a, a six-year-old with EOE is going to develop into an 18-year-old and a 40-year-old with EOE. And so having that transition as they move from pediatrics to adult is another important collaboration. So I think all of those things are, are strong reasons to collaborate in multidisciplinary care teams. There are models at specialized centers um, that participate in, in multidisciplinary care. And the thought is that it ultimately will improve uh, patient outcomes. I think there are limited centers, uh, and Mary Jo, maybe you could comment on this too, where there, it's, it can be hard to access these expert multidisciplinary groups, and that can be a point of, of frustration for patients, but hopefully you know, more of these will develop around the country. Multidisciplinary care teams or subspecialists, uh, you know, as mentioned, can be helpful for patients, particularly those with complicated EOE or depending on their therapy, as, as Dr. Dellen had previously mentioned. And as he also noted, you know, these patients may need ongoing services from GI, allergy, dietitians, and, and or feeding specialists and others. Well, thank you both, Mary Jo, Dr. Dellen. I, I can safely say that the audience and I have benefited greatly from you sharing your insights and expertise with us today. So I hope that the audience can take away from this discussion that EOE is a complex disorder that has a major impact on overall well-being and requires a multidisciplinary care team to properly treat it. On top of that, proper diagnosis takes time and consultation with a specialist and monitoring must be done on an ongoing basis and is quite burdensome for both patients and their caregivers. And finally, there is optimism with regard to those new and approved therapies, as well as those that are in the pipeline that patients will have additional options uh, to treat their disease in the future. And so with that, I would like to now open the discussion to our audience for some questions. And it does look like a few questions came in during the discussion. So Mary Jo, we'll start with you. Uh, you mentioned that many providers are unaware of EOE and for that reason missed the diagnosis. What is APFED doing to help combat that? Thank you. So uh, APFED is making educational content available to providers that we disseminate both in digital and hard copy forms. Uh, we travel to different medical society meetings to share resources with providers and also arm them with educational handouts that they can in turn give to patients. We promote the awareness of guidelines for diagnosis and treatments 
And we also collaborate to make CME programs available to providers so that they can learn more about EOE. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mary Jo. The next question uh, just came in and it says, is the course of the disease inevitable to progress to fibrosis? And so we'll give this one to Dr. Dellen. How does the severity of this disease change over time? And is there you know, a way that we can avoid that progression to fibrosis? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And you know, the data we have are primarily looking um, at patients, mostly in retrospective studies. But what we've found is that the longer patients have symptoms before diagnosis and treatment, the higher the likelihood that they will actually get diagnosed with strictures, narrowing, and signs of fibrosis. So for example, if someone is diagnosed in the first year or two, only there only may be a 10 to 20% chance <clears throat> that they have a stricture or fibrosis. But if they've had symptoms for, say, 20 years or more, then about 80% of people at least are going to have strictures and fibrosis. So it's not inevitable in every single person, um, but it's certainly the case, it seems like, for the majority of people. And I think that's really where early awareness, early diagnosis comes into play, because if you can get people when they've had a short symptom duration, hopefully you can give them effective treatment that will prevent this progression. Now, uh, the tricky thing is, of course, if someone presents with a stricture or fibrosis, the cat's already out of the bag. But the tricky thing is in the field is right now, if someone um, presents without that, we don't have a good way to predict who might ultimately um, progress and who might be someone who doesn't. And therefore, we're sort of treating everybody the same right now. Um, but a number of people are working on ways to, to characterize people a, a bit better to understand who may be at, at the highest risk for, um, for that kind of progression. Excellent. Thank you so much. And so, Mary Jo, I know that you talked a little bit about some of the ways that EOE impacts the patient and the caregiver, but uh, wanted to open it back up and see if you had any other thoughts on how EOE can impact quality of life for these patients. Sure. So from aside from physical symptoms related to EOE, uh, this condition really can impact quality of life in other ways like social isolation, uh, particularly if there are several dietary restrictions. Uh, it can also impact interpersonal relationships, uh, social activities and family gatherings, and school and work, which I previously noted, uh, but that really causes an additional anxiety and falling behind in grades or potentially losing employment due to missed time, whether it's for symptoms or for medical care and doctor's appointments, and particularly more so if somebody is traveling to receive care. But there's also frustration um, that is with navigating the medical system um, because depending on the care model, patient and caregivers need to devote time and attention and be organized to keep track of treatment plans and follow-ups, appointments and different specialists. And in some cases, navigate conflicting information from different specialists and ensure that those providers are communicating uh, with one another, um, and particularly if it's not in a formal managed care type setting. Some patients have had to put a lot of time into tracking all of that, and that burden can be compounded if there is lower health literacy. So certainly the emotional health can very much be impacted. 
Thank you so much, Mary Jo. And um, at this point, we uh, are coming up on time. So we'll just wrap up here. I just want to thank Dr. Dellen and Ms. Strobel again for their insightful commentary today. And once again, I would like to thank Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Inc. and Sanofi for their support of this educational activity.